Moving into the teaching, we're going to start this morning talking about um, little stories from two people that I would think most of us would consider kind of faith heroes. All right, so the first is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, In his autobiography, he tells a story of one of the defining moments of his life. Okay, he was 27 years old, young husband, father of an infant, And he'd been serving as the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, only a couple of years. And then, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks stayed sitting on that bus, kicking off the Montgomery bus boycott. Dr. King was asked to be the clergy spokesperson for this little movement, and he reluctantly agreed, hoping the whole thing would just be resolved pretty quickly in a month or so. But by six weeks Later, it was still going strong, and he'd become a target, receiving 30 to 40 death threats from whites a day. One hit him particularly hard. As he hung up the phone after a nasty call in the middle of the night, King hit a breaking point. He was tossing and turning. He couldn't sleep. He got up, put on a pot of coffee, And he was reflecting um, on the fact that his wife and newborn baby were in the next room, and he was aware he could be taken from them. He was aware they could be taken from him. He got to the point that he realized nobody could help him in this pit of fear that he was in. Not his dad, not his mom. In his words, he says, he realized, you've got to call on that something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about. That power that can make a way out of no way. Dr. King goes on in his autobiography and says, With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But Lord, I must confess that I am weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage now. I am afraid. And I can't let the people see me like this. Because if they see me weak and losing my courage, they will begin to get weak. The people are looking to me for leadership. If I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will fear. They will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And then he says, it seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And then Dr. King says, I tell you, I have seen the lightning flash. I have heard the thunder roar. I have felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I have never experienced him before. And almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. Dr. King would talk about that moment till the rest of his, till his life ended as being the key moment that gave him the courage 
to do everything he did. Three nights later, after that incident in his kitchen, King's house was bombed. But Dr. King had the encounter with God he needed for he and his family to continue the work with courage and a firm commitment to nonviolence, even in the face of great danger. So Mother Teresa has long been one of the modern heroes of the Catholic faith and far beyond it. Her humble work with lepers in Kolkata has inspired millions. It was as a young woman she sensed Jesus' invitation to give her life to the work, give her life to it in humility. She did. And throughout her life, her words encouraged and reassured scores of Christians and others. But as her private letters that were published posthumously revealed, she suffered for the last several decades of her life from what seemed to be the silence of God. In one undated letter, Mother Teresa writes, My God, I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd my heart, afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my soul. I am told God loves me. And yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great, nothing touches my soul. So we're in this teaching series that I'm calling It's Complicated, right? Considering paradoxes of Jesus-centered faith and how leaning into them, rather than trying to just simplify things, can actually help us understand truth more, get closer to God. And today we're going to consider what I think is kind of a classic paradox of Jesus-centered faith. And this paradox is related to our first two little stories. Why would these two 20th century heroes of the faith have such different experiences? Did one of them do something wrong? Weren't they both praying? Weren't they both giving their lives on behalf of what they felt was the call of God? Weren't they both in need of divine direction? Isn't God capable of speaking to both of them? Why would they not have a sense of revelation? There are probably a number of ways someone might try to answer that question. And I'm not going to, I'm just going to be honest, like I'm not going to try to give you like a full-blown answer because it's a mystery. But here are some ways I think people do uh, try to answer the question. Some would discount one experience or the other. There are certainly Christians who believe that we live in a period of history where people don't actually hear words from God. That's not a thing that happens. You don't hear the prophetic. You don't see the miraculous. People are not healed. That's not a part of how God works in this moment, they would say. That was something that happened when Jesus was here and the apostles. It's something that might happen in the future, but not now. So essentially, Dr. King was wrong. That wasn't God. There are others who have a sense that at least since the coming of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit, God's always active. God's always doing supernatural stuff. And if we're not seeing it, maybe that's just because we're not quite doing it right. Right? Maybe we're not quite believing in the right way or praying in the right way. Everyone who wants to can hear from God if they try. 
And when you pray for it, stuff should happen, right? Miracles will happen. People should be supernaturally healed as you pray and so on. So from this point of view, perhaps Mother Teresa was an error. But a lot of folks, particularly from the church tradition I have roots in, recognize that neither of those ways of viewing Jesus-centered faith really seems like it could be fully true. Neither of them seems to encapsulate the breadth of experiences people seem to have with God. Many folks believe that kind of trying to interpret it one way of those two also has a hard time holding all of the, the experiences recorded in Scripture together. A more nuanced understanding seems necessary. I think the reality is it's just more complicated than either of those first explanations would make room for. So, the questions around how to interpret the activity of God in the world do actually go back a long time. They certainly surrounded Jesus. So, as we start to look at this, we're going to take um, a bit of time to, to look at some of the, how he was answering some of the questions coming to him. So, the story we're going to look at comes to us from uh, the Gospel of Luke. And it involves two important characters, Jesus and John the Baptist. Okay, so we'll, give, we'll review a little context. John's story actually precedes Jesus's. And we get the sense that John's destiny is tangled up with preparing people to receive Jesus, receive the Messiah and the work that he was coming to do. Jesus was still working as a carpenter when this strange religious ascetic eating locusts and honey appeared in the desert preaching repentance, preaching that the God is coming. John is there to prepare the way for the coming king, God's anointed one. People came out from the cities and villages to hear him and be baptized by him in the Jordan River, and Jesus is one of them, right? As Jesus is being baptized, maybe you remember the story. John recognizes who he is. John says, oh my gosh, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals, but Jesus insists on being baptized by him. And of course, when he is, a cosmic voice is heard saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The spirit alights on Jesus like a dove. This is the event. This event is like the big initiation for Jesus into his years of ministry. But John, on the other hand, seems to have a change in fortune kind of not long after. He gets caught up in the political sex scandal of his day. Okay, Herod, who's the local ruler sanctioned by Rome, has become infatuated with a woman who is not his wife, kind of manipulates the law to take her for his own. And when John the Baptist publicly speaks out against this, Herod throws him in prison. And it's while he's in prison that Jesus' ministry is now taking off. He's preaching. He begins healing people. Crowds are drawn to him. In Luke 7, right before our passage, two big miracles happen. Jesus heals the servant of a Roman centurion, which is like a Roman soldier. And then Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. And then we get our story. Okay, so that's the context. Let's pick it up, starting with uh, verse 18, Luke 7. John's disciples told him about all these things. And calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And when the man came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask to you, 
sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So John's in prison, and his followers have been keeping him up to date on the goings-on out in the outside world. Because, you know, no Twitter, no cable news. The only way he knows what's happening is people coming in and telling him, right? So that's what's been happening. And as he hears the stories, John's, like, genuinely confused. Why is he confused? Luke seems to think that his question about Jesus's identity is important enough that he includes it twice in a row. Okay? Are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? He's like verbatim. It's twice there, two verses in a row. That's a clue. Luke thinks it's a big deal that John is asking this question. So what's the question about? The story comes six chapters in Luke's account later than the story of John's conception. As Luke tells it, John was miraculously conceived to an elderly, previously barren woman, right, Elizabeth, with the promise that he was coming to be the prophet, making the way before the Lord. A few verses later, the story says that when the pregnant virgin Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, the child in Elizabeth's womb, John, leaps as he divinely recognizes the other child in the womb, Jesus. The story is that John has been so clear in his calling, his identity to make the way open for Jesus, who he understood to be the Messiah, that his responsiveness to the Spirit and that call on his life has been there even before his birth. And yet, now some 30 years later, Now that Jesus is preaching and he's actually making headway as a popular rabbi and he's like performing miracles, John doubts that Jesus actually is the Messiah. Why? Both John's question and Jesus' answer have to do not just with who these guys are or even what exactly is happening in the moment. They both have to do with what they understood And what was understood in their day to be the future, the cosmic future. How the story of the world as they were supposed to, as they understood it, was supposed to end is actually in play. The question and answer has to do with the big theological word. And here we are going to seminary today. The big theological word seminarians call eschatology. Okay, we're talking eschatology, meaning the study of the end times, or as Merriam-Webster says, a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world. Okay, now talking eschatology is certainly a good way to introduce a lot of complicated. We're not going to get super far into the weeds, but we can't avoid talking about it because it's essentially what the debate is about for Jesus and John. By the time Jesus came, There were a variety of visions in Israel about what the coming anointed one or Messiah would be. 
Okay? They were all, they all understood that the Messiah would be a political leader, a king who would restore Israel to an independent nation and reign on its throne. But many also understood the prophets to be saying that this leader was like more than mortal. This was a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, whose kingdom would never end. He would bring ultimate judgment and justice. He would set things to right. He would bring shalom, a a life, a world of peace and holistic well-being to all people. The Messiah would bring heaven to earth, bringing the reign of God itself. And so here John is in prison, and he's hearing about all the miracles Jesus is performing, and he thinks, you know, I thought you were the Messiah. I thought that meant the end times were here. But this doesn't look like what it's supposed to be. Have the end times come? Or are they still in the future? Are you God's anointed one, or should we look for another? And you can kind of understand the confusion. I mean, if the Messiah coming means freeing the captives, why is John, the forerunner of the Messiah, stuck in prison? If the Messiah coming means liberating the Israelites by vanquishing Rome, why did Jesus just heal a Roman soldier's servant? Why is he, like, helping the Romans out? And it's true that some of the things John expected definitely were not happening the way he thought they should be. But as John's question is delivered by his messengers to Jesus, Luke points us to what is happening and the actions that he thinks are ultimately the answer to John's deeper question about whether God's kingdom was indeed coming to earth. Luke says right there and then, as the questions are being asked, Jesus was healing people. Here's how he says it. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And Jesus' words called the importance of this out. All the things he was doing were also connected to the promises of the prophets. They were also part of the messianic expectation. Tell John this, Jesus is saying. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, if you're not familiar with ancient prophecies, these words might not mean a lot. I mean, they'd be impressive to any of us, for sure. But we may not hear how Jesus is answering John's real question. But John would have understood the message Jesus was sending because each of these things Jesus references recalls the words of Isaiah. All of them are from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 35, 5. So we have all of these. Then blind eyes will open, deaf ears will hear, then the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy. Then we've got Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will come back to life. Your corpses will rise up, just like the boy had just risen. Wake up and shout joyfully, you who live in the ground, for you will grow like plants drenched with the morning dew. The earth will bring forth its dead spirits. Isaiah 29, at that time, the deaf will be able to hear words read from a scroll. The eyes of the blind will be able to see through deep darkness. The downtrodden will again rejoice in the Lord. The poor among humankind will take delight in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has chosen me, commissioned me to encourage the poor, to help the brokenhearted, decree the release of captives, the freeing of prisoners. This is what Jesus is saying. Tell John. 
all of these prophecies are being fulfilled. It's happening, John. It is happening. This is God on the move. You didn't miss it. You weren't wrong. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Yes, this is the era you were looking ahead to. This is the messianic age, the coming of God's kingdom. And it's also different than you thought it was going to be. Those both are true. Jesus ends with this interesting little coda. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What does he mean? Others might translate it, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. The Greek word he's using is scandalon. It does mean something you stumble on, literally. But it has become used, it's the, it's the root of our word scandal, right? Scandalize, offense. Essentially, I think he's saying, don't let the ways that I don't match your perceptions keep you from experiencing what God is doing. Don't be so scandalized by my unorthodox ways that you can't experience God's coming. Of course, the ways that Jesus didn't match these messianic expectations that surrounded him would only get bigger. Jesus never did take up arms against Rome. He did not secure John's release from prison. John the Baptist was executed by the state. He died an innocent for speaking uncomfortable truth to power. And of course, Jesus followed John's footsteps, not just into ministry, but also into an unjust death at the hands of the state. But that death, as unexpected as it was, as counter as it appeared to the eschatology of the day, that was not the end of Jesus' story, right? That's the center of Jesus-centered faith, that the cross was not the end. The reign of God, God's kingdom continuing to break through most spectacularly through Jesus' resurrection introduces a new kind of power, a life after death power into existence, demonstrating a powerful hope that God's shalom-making work was still unfolding. All of this brings us finally to the paradox that I think many people find helpful in answering our initial questions about why sometimes we see what looks like the activity of God, and sometimes we don't. It's often called the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. The now and the not yet speaks to the same question John was asking. How do we understand what's happening now in relationship to like the great cosmic ending? And for many theologians, this understanding is centered in this thing Jesus seemed to talk about all the time. The Basileia Tauthea, in English, we say the kingdom of God. Okay, the kingdom of God. Clearly, part of what John misunderstood was the idea, and he wasn't the only one, that the kingdom coming meant a political state being established. Jesus did talk a lot about the kingdom coming. And he used all kinds of pictures to try to demonstrate it. But when you think about it, it didn't look like a political state. It looked like other things, like yeast working through dough, like a mustard seed growing into a great tree. So how 
does a kingdom work like that? What if the kingdom wasn't actually, as Jesus described it, a place or a system of government, a government entity, but rather it was a state of being, a relationship? You are under the sovereignty of a king. That is, you are in that sovereign's kingdom. A reality where God's ways grow and become more and more powerful in the world as those who want to follow God come under God's reign. They allow God to be their sovereign. The kingdom increases. So what does God's reign look like? I have to be honest. I myself in this moment in time feel more uncomfortable than I ever have with the language of God as a monarch because I think it can paint God as an oppressor who concentrates power in his macho hands, right? I think we have to wrestle with that. That is the opposite. Here's what is hopeful to me, that that image is actually the opposite of the kind of kingdom Jesus seems to be speaking of. Jesus demonstrates an upside-down, backwards kind of kingdom, a kingdom of shalom, holistic well-being, that must be received by becoming like little children, not powerful oppressors. A kingdom in which the powerful are made weak and those the world considers weak or foolish are centered and celebrated. A kingdom not maintained by the power of violence, but through the power of self-giving love. That's the kingdom that Jesus was initiating. That's what the signs he was doing and told John to pay attention to were pointing out. God's eschatological work was indeed happening. That's why sometimes you hear the words miracles called signs and wonders. They're intended to point to God's kingdom in our midst. It's a sign, a wonder that demonstrates it. The kingdom is coming, the sign says. In a sense, with Jesus, it has come. It is here now. That is the now. Jesus performs miracles. He does amazing things. He dies. He's raised from the dead. After he ascends to heaven, the spirit is sent, empowering Jesus' followers to do the same kind of kingdom work that Jesus initiated with the promise that Jesus would be with them always to the end of the age. The same promise Dr. King received in the kitchen that night in 1956 gives us a hope that that's all still happening that that's all still now, right? The kingdom is now. But the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness. The end of the age has not arrived. The last days may have begun, but they're not done. This is not the end of the story. The kingdom has not fully come. It is now, but it is also not yet. Does that make sense? It's, it's kind of a mind-bender. I'm going to be honest. Now, theologians have some big words, so we're going to seminary again. Another big word. Theologians call this whole idea inaugurated eschatology. Okay? That's kind of the theological term for the now and the not yet. Inaugurated eschatology. N.T. Wright is a theologian who kind of unpacks that a little bit. He says, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It's the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. It has been inaugurated, okay? It has come, but it is not done. 
That's the idea. It is now, it is not yet. So if that's the case, it certainly does introduce the question of, well, what are we supposed to think about, like, the end end? Right? A lot of people get caught up in that. Will there be a rapture? Is Jesus literally coming again? Will there be a flash of light? There are a lot of theologians that have a lot of different theories, often drawing very passionately from how they read the prophets or some of the things in the Gospels or Revelation. I'm not going to go there. Because as this story shows us, even the most called, learned, prophetic, like John the Baptist, can get these things wrong. We would do well to hold our theories lightly, recognizing we're in the area of considering great mystery. Amen? What I am comfortable standing in is a belief that this life that we're in the midst of, this year, this political climate, what is happening with the earth, all of it, this moment is not the end. My faith is rooted in the hope that this life is not all there is, that there is evidence of something beyond. There are moments of glory that have been experienced. There are signs and wonders to be encountered. There's an arc of history that is strained but is slowly bending over time towards justice. And in all of that, I have hope that this is not how the story ends. Amen? It reminds me of the end of The Last Jedi. If you saw that late last year. If you haven't seen it, sorry. This might be a spoiler. It ends somewhat bleakly. Let's be honest, okay? Bleakly, but not despairingly. This is a picture. Before we see this in the movie, there's, the, there's all the what's left of the resistance fighters on this ship at the end of the movie, right? And, and, and Leia, the general, you know, she's comforting Rey, who's like the young Jedi in training, who's feeling pretty despairing at the moment. Like, how can we build the resistance with this? And she says, we have everything we need. Now, we haven't seen the last film yet. It hasn't come out. But we get a sense that the story's not over. We've seen what Ray can do. And then we see this young child at the end who uses the force to pick up a broom. And there are signs. And then he looks up into the stars, like odd, thinking about the resistance. There are signs that it can rise again. But we haven't reached the end of the age where the struggle is over. It's kind of where I see us in the story sometimes. The now and the not yet, how does this play out? It suggests we can pray, and sometimes folks are healed. And we can pray, and sometimes they're not. Some will experience the miraculous. Some hearts are broken by tragedy and disappointment. I personally have seen too much to dismiss this kingdom stuff. I've seen stuff that I can't logically explain any other way. Moments of experiencing the universe seeming to interact with me. God seeming to lead me and give me different puzzle pieces along the way that have come together over decades in ways I couldn't have predicted or orchestrated. I've prayed for people. I have seen them healed. That has happened. I have heard words that seem to be from God. 
I've also experienced lots of silence, lots of disappointment, people we prayed for that nothing happened, lots of times where it wasn't clear our prayers were answered in any real way. I can be honest, it's really hard to hold the tension of an inaugurated eschatology. Most people don't hold it well. It's hard. It's hard to hold now in one hand, believe for now, and also hold the reality of the not yet in another. Some folks lean heavily into the kingdom is not yet. It's just not going to happen. This leads to fatalism. Why even pray? What will be will be. What actually is God going to do? On the other hand, I think some folks tend to lean too heavily into the kingdom is now, right? Leading to this belief, if you just pray hard enough, if you just believe the right way, miracles will happen. Prosperity will come to you. You don't have to experience suffering. But as we see with John, as we see with Jesus, the new creation that Jesus is introducing is not birthed in triumphalism. It's not birthed in freedom from suffering. It's birthed in suffering. Right? Resurrection comes after death. In this season of tension, we must have both. I mean, even every person we've ever heard of their story that they were healed, they died. That happened later. Let's just be honest. This life is not about freedom from suffering. It's about the both and. So what? What do we do with all this? Truthfully, I think that's the most important question of the teaching. If this now and not yet paradox is true, if we are really in the moment of inaugurated eschatology, what does it actually mean for how we live? Okay, this is not just a, okay, now I have a framework for this, so I'm, I, I don't have to think about it. I actually think it matters what, what we do with it. So I'm going to end with two takeaways. First, the now and the not yet is an invitation to mystery not a justification for suffering or injustice. You hear that? The now and the not yet is an invitation to mystery, not a justification for suffering or injustice. Why do I think it needs to be said? I'll be honest, what's made me ambivalent about even preaching this paradox is the way I feel like I have seen it used by pastors, by theologians, particularly people of privilege, to minimize the realities of suffering. Yes, it's so sad that Mother Teresa didn't hear from God, but that doesn't mean God's not real. It's just, you know, the reality of the now and the not yet. You hear that? Yeah, it's bad that racism plagues our nation, or people are starving to death when others are throwing away food, or the planet's being destroyed, but, you know, that's just the now and the not yet. No! We are not called to use our theology to distance ourselves from suffering. Or to minimize it with some sort of pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die kind of faith. It's all going to be okay in the end, so don't worry. No. We are invited to see that far from justifying suffering with theology, we have a God who identifies with the suffering even in the inauguration. Amen? Jesus enters the suffering, encounters folks in the suffering, even while making a way for a new creation. We don't have to suffer alone. At times, like Dr. King, we might actually find Jesus 
in those places where we need a way where there is no way, in those places of suffering, right? In him, encounter the hope that this is not the end for us, as it was not the end for him. It is not just a way to say, it's all fine. I don't have to worry about the pain in the world. It's just part of the now and the not yet. No, it's an invitation to mystery, not a way to just say we have everything figured out and we don't have to deal with the pain of it, the complexity of it. Does that make sense? Most of the context I have learned, inaugurated eschatology in, came from this charismatic evangelical part of the world where that, that was the landscape. Is this is the way we talk about why people don't get healed all the time, even though we are going to encourage you to pray that people will be healed. But what I found interesting doing the research for this is that uh, that's not the only place it's been used. Okay, Black liberation theologian James Coney, who recently passed, is amazing uh, contribution to the theological world. Um, he tells us that it was the same kind of theology, inauguration eschatology, that enslaved, kept enslaved black Christians going before the Civil War. As they looked towards liberation, they believed must come. Yes, in the age to come, but in this age too. He says it this way. Black hope accepts history, but believes that the historical is in motion, moving towards a divine fulfillment. It is the belief that things can be radically otherwise than they are. That reality is not fixed, but is moving in the direction of human liberation. To believe that there was hope in the midst of oppression meant that black slaves' vision of the future was not limited to their present state of slavery. They looked beyond the condition of servitude and perceived the real meaning of their existence was still to come. History is continuing to move forward. The kingdom is coming more and more and more. And that affects how we live today. That's what kept those Christians alive, even in the midst of slavery. It kept them hopeful. And this brings me to our last important takeaway. If any of this is true, if this theory of inaugurated eschatology holds water, the role of those of us in these final chapters, however long they go, is to participate in the bringing of the not yet into the now. That is what the church is about. That is why we're here. We're not meant to be passively just waiting for the not yet. We're actually commissioned to be the sent ones of God who bring into reality, who pray and embody, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. This means, yes, praying for signs and wonders. Yes. Make space for miracles, for mystical experiences, all of that. It also means share the truth of God's good reign, bringing freedom and life and shalom to the world with those we encounter. It also means doing the work of justice. Contemporary black theologian Akemeni Uwan gave a talk on inaugurated eschatology and Black Lives Matter at a theological conference recently where she made a theological case based on the now and the not yet for not only praying, but voting, community organizing, protesting, donating to support candidates and policies that bring greater equity for black lives. Beginning next week, this kind of work will be taking place around the country. As Dr. William Barber 
and others lead a nationwide movement of nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience. They're calling the Poor People's Campaign. We have a couple images here. And I have a website on your paper if you want to check it out later. The leaders are calling this moral fusion organizing. It's an interfaith work intended to pick up the work of Dr. King 50 years after his death. This was what he was working on when he was assassinated, and they are relaunching it. A campaign to confront the issues of poverty, systemic racism, the war economy, and ecological devastation. Some of us in Haven have started to get involved, going to some trainings and mass meetings. And I would encourage all of you to consider if you might want to be involved in some way. Check out the website. Sign up for the mailing list if you like. You can pray. It may just be that. Pray for it. I think everyone involved would welcome your prayers. You could donate. You could uh, see if you feel called. Some of us might feel called. There's a number of trainings that are being done on risking arrest, on demonstrating through nonviolent means. They are very committed to everyone involved being uh, kind of held accountable to nonviolence. And then there's going to be this set of direct actions. The plan is starting May 14th, I think, every Monday in Sacramento for six weeks. Um, there'll be groups demonstrating, and there may be others uh, in closer to home as well. All of this, the spiritual and the social engagement, that is the necessary. That's why I call this teaching the now, the not yet, and the necessary. All of this participates in the reign of God coming to fullness in the world. All of it takes seriously our commission to participate with the kingdom coming as we partner with more of the now, yet becoming the now. Both Dr. King and Mother Teresa had different experiences at times of the divine. They both experienced the effects of the now and the not yet in different ways, for better, for worse. But they also both gave their lives to the work of bringing the not yet into being. Amen? For all her doubts, Mother Teresa left this world with more of the kingdom having come to earth than when she began it. It's for that reason she is right to be canonized, to be called a saint. In the same way, Haven, I think we have the opportunity to be a part of embodying the kingdom here and now, of experiencing shalom and inviting others into it. As we pray and try to embody, let your kingdom come, God, on earth day by day, more and more, as it is in heaven. Amen. Let me pray for us as we end. God, I thank you that you are a God who surprises us, who transcends our expectations, who confuses us at times. Because that means you're bigger than we can try to hold on to. And why would we come? Why would we want to uh, follow you if you were not bigger than our minds can comprehend? Would this be a space where we're continually um, invited deeper into the mystery of how your kingdom has come, is coming, and will come? And may we experience you come here May we be a part of what you're doing in the world around us. Amen.